Our first reading is from Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarnish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, lightening it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. Please join me in reading Psalm 23 in unison. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I cannot lock. He shall feed me in green pastures and lead me forth beside the waters of comfort. He shall refresh my soul and bring me forth in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadows of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You shall prepare the table before me in the presence of those who trouble me. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup shall be full. Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, 
world without end. Amen. Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So if there is an encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst your, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God had highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, the name of Jesus, so at that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I con condemn you. Go from now on and sit no more. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, we'll wrap up the second half of our sermon mini-series titled, Love Over Fear. 
where we're considering how Jesus' command to love our neighbor extends even to our enemies. Last week, I acknowledged how we are certainly called to love those closest to us, which has its own set of challenges, as our Lenten workshop on boundaries detailed. But in this series, our focus is particularly on the challenge of loving the one who is other than us, the one whose morals or politics or race or religion is different from our own, and who is therefore and are therefore for whom we are most likely to feel hatred or contempt. Now, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday, just to catch you up a bit, last Sunday we identified that in the case of loving our enemies, or enemy love as I'll call it, our primary obstacle is actually fear. With the help of Dan White Jr.'s recently published book, Love Over Fear, we discussed how fear and love are mutually exclusive. Just as 1 John says that perfect love casts out fear, it is also true that perfect fear casts out love. Fear blinds us from seeing the image of God in others and instead causes us to view them as monsters. And we have the impulse to either attack or avoid. But it is Jesus who shows us there is a third option other than attacking or avoiding. It's Jesus who shows us that we can seek to cultivate affection for our enemies. Just as God did to us in sending his son. Well, in hearing from many of you in our life group meetings after last week's sermon, the impression I came away with is that most all of us are convinced that as Jesus' followers, we are called to love our enemies. We believe that in theory, right? But being converted to it in practice, actually being inclined toward living that way and knowing how to live that way, that is a separate mountain to climb. So this morning, drawing once again from Dan White Jr.'s book, I want to explore more deeply what the path might be to actually living out the, the love, living out love for our enemies. Now last week we talked about some of our obstacles to loving our enemies, not least of which is the fact that our brains are physiologically wired in a way that inclines us toward fear, inclines us toward the impulses of attacking or, vo- or avoiding our enemies, rather than love. But today I want to consider two societal influences that further hinder us from loving our, ang- our neighbor. The first influence I want to mention that causes us to be especially challenged in loving our neighbor is that society teaches us, society today teaches us, that we can know people without ever talking to them. That we can know them without ever talking to them. That, that is, that we can know them by strictly knowing information about them. Now, this is because Western society has come to define knowledge as the awareness of information. In other words, knowledge has become understood primarily as an awareness of facts or factoids. Have you all seen this guy doing Jeopardy right now? James Holzhauer, I don't know if I'm saying that right. 
On Friday, he won his 27th straight game and became the second contestant ever to eclipse the $2 million mark. Well, we would probably say that James is a guy who knows stuff, right? Why? Because our society has trained us to think of knowledge primarily as the awareness of facts, of information. Well, as you can imagine, this notion of knowledge as facts has only become more entrenched with the emergence of the internet and smartphones. Yes, these, these recent technological advances have created the phenomenon known as expert delusion. Expert delusion, which White defines as the misguided belief that just because we have access to information about something, that we can therefore be an expert about it. This is the delusion that, that we can be an expert on something just because we've read multiple blogs about it or listened to multiple podcasts or read multiple Twitter feeds about it. That somehow can make us an expert. But understanding knowledge as information combined with this expert delusion also impacts how we view other people because it gives us the false impression that we can have a person pegged without ever even talking to them. That we can know people based solely on an awareness of their views, whether they be their political views or moral views or religious views. We can have them pegged. And because this understanding of knowledge is so impersonal, it weakens the potential for us to feel any empathy towards those people. Right? So it feeds our tendency to make them into monsters. It encourages in people ridiculous beliefs about whole groups of people, like that all, all Muslims want to kill Americans, or all conservatives are white supremacists, or all liberals are sexually immoral. Right? People feel like they can jump to those conclusions in a justified manner. They think they know these people, despite often never even talking to one. Well, in contrast to this modern and impersonal approach to knowledge, White suggests that Jesus modeled an approach that was different. His approach to knowing others was instead a learning process that occurs through relationship. In other words, what Jesus makes apparent is that the way we come to truly know people is by entering into relationship with them. And notably, this includes how we should understand what it means for us to know Jesus himself, right? Unfortunately, Christianity in the West has become heavily influenced by this predominantly factoid view of knowledge, and thus the church is prone to teach that distorted version of the gospel that salvation comes from just thinking correctly about Jesus. If you think all the right ideas about him, right, like that he's the son of God or that he rose from the dead, that you can be saved, that that's where salvation is. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's, that's projecting a modern mentality onto an ancient text. The Bible teaches that salvation comes through entering into a spiritual relationship with the risen Lord. A relationship. So that's the first major hindrance that our society kind of puts on us to loving our enemies. But another influence that hinders us is the way that our law culture in American society it shapes us to always be trying to determine who is right 
and who is wrong. The law culture of our country shapes us to always be trying to determine who's right and who's wrong. This, this law system came from England, right? It was brought to America by the original settlers. It was based on the idea that a person has to be aware of what they are doing, that they're doing something wrong, in order to actually be found guilty of it and branded, be branded a criminal. So from this perspective, the purpose of civil laws, right, like against murder and stealing, all this sort of stuff, the purpose of these civil laws is to inform our consciences about what's right and wrong. Later on, Teddy Roosevelt would say that a civil society is a society that is legislated, that has laws. In other words, laws make a society civil, which is good. It's great. But White points out that while our law culture is certainly valuable for maintaining some order and civility in society, it has serious side effects on our ability to relate with others. As he explains it, law may keep us off each other's lawns, but law does not teach us how to love our neighbor. Instead, the American law culture inclines us to view people primarily in terms of right and wrong. Is that a right person or a wrong person? Right. We then take this into the area of moral law, right? Religious, religious law. And it makes it increasingly difficult to see the humanity of those whom we believe are sinning. Right? We make them into monsters. This is precisely the point St. Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 8, which is printed in that box in your bulletin. You see, the Corinthian Christians have been, had been abstaining from the sin of eating foods dedicated to idols. They'd come to understand that that was a sin, right? But their obedience to that moral law causes them to think themselves better than those weak people who don't abstain. So Paul is rebuking them. Paul's rebuking them for lacking empathy toward the weak. Citing this as an example of knowledge of the law, puffing them up. He said only love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So our sinful condition inclines all of us toward a preoccupation with always trying to determine who is right and who is wrong, toward standing in judgment of others, even though the scriptures reserve the role of judgment entirely for God. The Greek root for the word judgment is krino, which means to separate. We, we judge others because it feels good to do it. Right? Because when we separate ourselves from others, it gives us a false sense of superiority. Right? They're wrong, I'm right. They're bad, I'm good. Well, because our civil law culture in America trains us to view people primarily in terms of right and wrong, it only exacerbates this sinful tendency in us, making it that much harder to love our enemies. So I've just outlined some reasons why as members of 21st century Western society, we may be especially prone to create monsters out of others. And perhaps this will allow us, though, to relate to the religious leaders in our gospel passage today.
who made a monster out of a woman caught in adultery. John writes that early one morning Jesus was in the temple when some scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placed her before Jesus. And in verse 5, they cite the law of Moses as commanding them to stone such a woman, which it does. But this reveals that they're viewing her primarily through the lens of right and wrong. Right? She's a wrong one. She's a bad one. Right? And so seeking to trap Jesus, they ask him to respond. And, and when he finally does, he points out the absurdity of any human being taking on God's role of standing in judgment toward their fellow man saying to them in verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And hearing this, they went away one by one. But we should be clear here that Jesus doesn't deny God's moral law or its importance. Not at all. In fact, in the final line, he'll command her to sin no more, right? So he values it. But his actions also reflect that love and mercy are higher priorities for him. As he treats her with dignity and compassion, that, that indicates that her sin doesn't define her. He, he does this by asking her questions, right? And instead of asking, well, why'd you do it, lady? Right, I mean... That'd probably be my inclination, right? Why'd you do it? Instead of that, he asked, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And he said, Well, neither do I. Now I tell you, it is hard to imagine this woman going home unchanged from that encounter with Jesus. And yet if the religious leaders had gotten their way, remember they, they kind of represent us, sorry. If they'd gotten their way, what good would have been accomplished? None at all. And yet their antagonism, their focus on right and wrongs, that represents the way polarization tends to orient us towards our enemies leading us to employ shame and coercion and arguments in an attempt to get people over to our side the way we want them to be, which, is, which rarely, if ever, produces the result we desire. Right? It doesn't really work anyway. Have you ever wondered about what Jesus was up to when he twice bent down? He wrote something with his finger in the dirt in verses 6 and 8. Many have wondered what Jesus wrote, which John doesn't share, but maybe that's because it would be missing the point. Frederick Bruner suggests it's possible Jesus was buying a little time for himself to consider, you know, to kind of get his wits about him and consider how he should respond. But more likely in verse 6, Jesus wants to avoid looking at the woman so as to not take part in her shaming. And then in verse 8, it's her accusers he doesn't want to shame. After he said, you know, you who are without sin, 
cast the first stone. In verse 8, he again looks at the ground waiting for each of them to walk away. In other words, first, Jesus loves this woman whom whose accusers have made her into a monster. And then he remarkably, he loves the accusers as well. Right? It's easy to make them into the enemies in the story, right? Just switching teams. What this points to is the value of actions that White calls creative disruptions. Creative disruptions that are necessary for creating the space and opportunities to love our enemies. For disrupting kind of the, the, the track that the train's going down, right? The track was going down, this woman getting, she was going to be a goner, <laughs> right? Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus do things that sometimes seem like super odd, White suggests often these are creative disruptions. In fact, when Jesus is teaching on enemy love in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he offers there some really bizarre-sounding advice, right? such as turning the other cheek. But White suggests these are actually just further examples of creative disruptions that would create opportunities for enemy love. Just looking at this passage from Matthew 5, briefly, that I've included in the box in your bulletin, White says it's noteworthy in verse 39 that Jesus specifically says the right cheek, right? He could have just said, whoever hits you on the cheek. He says the right cheek. See, because people in those days used their left hand in, for their bathroom business, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, it was customary for everyone to use their right hand for everything else, right? Well, slapping or backhanding someone in those days meant treating them as subhuman. So that first action of slapping them with the right hand, really backhanding them, would have been to treat them as, as worthless, right? But if the, the person who's just been hit had res responds by then offering their left cheek, then that person who's just slapped them would have to look them in the eye and punch them, which I know that sounds more painful, but in that culture was actually more dignified. It was a way of, it was forcing the person to treat them as an equal. Fine, you're going to treat me like dirt, but now I'm going to offer you my, my other cheek, my left cheek, that you're going to have to punch while you look me straight in the eye. Imagine being the, the assaulter, or whatever you call it, not assailant, assault, we're going to call it assaulter. They'd be thinking, what are you doing? It would disrupt. Or with verse 40, White explains that when someone sued you for your tunic in those days, they were taking everything you had because you hadn't paid your debts, right? All you got left is the clothes on your back. So Jesus says when that happens, hand over your coat as well. Or cloak. See, the cloak was the outer garment that was worn like a blanket to keep warm. So if someone sued you for your tunic, your cloak is all that you would be left in. So if you, if you give them your cloak too, you're standing there naked in front of the person who's just sued you for every last thing you have. And they are suddenly confronted with the true reality of what they've done to you. Right? i got this naked person in front of me. Right? And finally, with verse 41, in Jesus' day, 
Israel was subjected to Roman occupation, right? Rome, Rome occupied Israel. Well, according to Roman law, a soldier could command any Jewish man to carry their, their gear and, and therefore treat that Jewish man like an animal. And yet the law limited that kind of conscription to one mile. They could only do it for one mile, right? They didn't want these Roman soldiers to make permanent servants out of people. So imagine how surprised the soldier would be if after one mile, the person voluntarily kept going another. As White says, the soldier would be wondering, what is going on? So who holds the power then? Of course, in addition to this, the story from last week we shared of, of White making a gift basket for the acquaintance who'd sent him that a nasty email that was another example of a creative disruption that disarmed his enemy. Right. However, the necessary ingredient required for all of these, all these responses, the necessary ingredient is, of course, forgiveness. Right. You can't go that extra mile if you haven't forgiven the person first. You know, we're so used to thinking about forgiveness as being weakness. Or surrendering. But here Jesus is actually presenting forgiveness as a secret weapon in hopes that we'll see that forgiveness is not powerless at all, but it, instead it might be the only thing that is actually powerful enough to transform our enemy. You know, as White says, the cultural assumption today is that, that voting is the most effective means by which we can make the world a better place. Right? That is the cultural assumption for Americans. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. Have at it. But Scripture seems to indicate that enemy love, in the form of creative disruption, has much greater potential to affect real change. The difference, of course, is that seeking change through politics doesn't require we love our enemies at all. In fact, it actually and tends to encourage the opposite, right? So it's easier. Works with our sin a lot better. But the picture of enemy love we see in Jesus gives space for others to be who they are and to be near us without judgment, right? Jesus was able to be present with gluttons and drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors alike without having any agenda for them other than Loving presence, being a loving presence to them and truly enjoying their presence, genuinely. But how can we become capable of such radical living? Well, White suggests it begins with us looking inward and beginning to confront the many aversions to enemy love that rage inside of us. What keeps us from enemy love are the parts within us that have failed to receive the perfect love of Christ. What keeps us from enemy love are the parts within us that have failed to receive the perfect love of Christ. And apart from allowing God to heal those parts, we will not be able to make space to be still and listen and make eye contact and enjoy the presence of someone whose moral choices we loathe. 
Instead, our sinful flesh will insist that our opinions, our preferences, our way of life always be highlighted and respected by the other. So according to White, although the objects of our fears are often external to us, the real source of our fear that creates these enemies is internal. The monster the real monster is oneself, at least some aspects of ourself. And this leads us to Jonah. You know, despite appearing as one of the smallest books in Scripture, clocking in at just four chapters, the story of Jonah remains one of the most familiar stories from the Bible to those both inside and outside the church. Right? However, it may also be one of the most misunderstood. Theologian David Blower says the book of Jonah is rightly understood as a tract about enemy love. See, when God calls Jonah as a prophet to go to the city of Nineveh and call out against it, we've got to understand that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Well, the Assyrians were basically known as the Nazis of the ancient world. I'm not sure it would even be appropriate for me to explain the extent of their brutality here in church. <laughs> but just to give a few examples, the Assyrians were known for constructing lavish towers out of the severed heads of their enemies and for publicly skinning people alive, among other horrors. And with every battle won, it was the king of the Assyrians who got to choose which imaginative horrors the vanquished would be subjected to that day. Well, prophets in the Bible like Nahum, were, they were unrestrained in condemning the Assyrians for their atrocities. But as Blower says, it's one thing to criticize with words from afar, right? But God was calling Jonah to go to them, to go to these people. And it just so happens that prior to this, prior to God calling Jonah to do this, Jonah's job had been to build barriers between the Israelites and the Assyrians. You'll notice in the box in your bulletin a scripture from 2 Kings, which is the only mention of Jonah outside of the book of Jonah. And it reports that King Jeroboam of Israel restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word God had spoken by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. So this is Jonah recommending the expansion of Israel's northern border with a people called the Arameans. Why? Because the Arameans were the only thing standing between Israel and their greatest threat, who was, you guessed it, the Assyrians. That was the Israelites' greatest enemy at the time, the world's greatest enemy at the time, right? The Nazis, ISIS, whatever. But now the book of Jonah begins with the Lord calling him to go to them, to go to Nineveh, to go in search of the image of God and the Assyrian people. So Jonah runs the other way. He hops on a ship to Spain. That's where Tarshish is believed to be. You know Jonah's the only prophet in the Bible who runs from God's assignment to him? 
And that's because God's sending him to his greatest enemy. And he doesn't want anything to do with that. Right? We know what happens next. God causes such a storm for that ship that Jonah knows will only be calmed by the mariners throwing him overboard. And we're told that the, the Lord, when they do that, the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And finding himself in the be belly of this whale not only ends Jonah's flight from God, it ends Jonah's flight from himself. There he is left to finally face his hatred for the Assyrians. And how terrible it feels. For God to call Jonah to love them. Well, after Jonah repents, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomits him on dry land. And after journeying to Nineveh, there Jonah calls the Ninevites, the Assyrians, to repent. Well, this was a disruptive act. Revealing, to reveal to these monstrous people, right? their barbaric ways to reveal to them that God still loves them, that God values them enough to send a prophet to them and call them to repentance. And when word reaches their king, you know, the man who made a hobby out of choosing gruesome ways for captured opponents to be tortured, the king repents. And he calls his people to repent as well. And so the Lord decides not to destroy the Assyrians. Well, as White observes, it was not Jonah's words that wooed the Assyrian tyrant king to repentance, to change his ways. No, the unexpected power was found in Jonah's going there. It was his actual physical presence, the vulnerability of it. That's what spoke volumes. And of course, it points forward to the incarnation of Jesus centuries later, that he would come and be vulnerable present among us, as well as the creative disruptions he would teach us about. The Lord wants to help us to begin to imitate him in loving our enemies. And yet Blower insists that enemy love as an idea, you know, it ain't worth a cup of coffee, right? It's just a clanging gong, he says. It he says, enemy love only counts for something when it, it's actually done. So when we're not just talking about it for a two-week mini-series, but when we actually try to do it. But often what keeps enemy love in the realm of the theoretical and talk is that we think our, of our worst enemies as being far away, right? right? So we talk, you know, some of our life groups, things like ISIS came up, right? And these, these faraway monsters. So in order to get us moving into action, Blower challenges us to love what he calls the local other. In other words, to consider who in Oakdale or in Stanislaus County represents our enemy. Fine. ISIS is your greatest enemy. Who represents them here? All right. You nudge them for me. <laughs> so in order to love our enemies, we must come toward them. But How? Well, one of the primary ways Jesus broke through barriers to make space with enemies was through the sharing of a meal. 
In Jesus' day, the meal table is where people separated typically into their social and political tribes, right? Eating, those, eating with those who were out of your social group in Jesus' day was super taboo, right? But Jesus would eat with who? With anybody. He'd eat with anyone. So perhaps practicing table fellowship somehow with those who differ from us in, in race or politics or religion or morals is a way to begin building bridges in this age of divisive culture wars. You know, it pleases me to think about how diverse this congregation is, at least from a standpoint of political views and even some theological views. And I wonder if our sharing together in a meal each week Sharing together in Holy Communion has played a role in bridging over those differences. But once we're at the table or sharing the same space with an enemy, how should we go about engaging them? This is how I want to wrap up today. Well, if the situation is, is one where animosity is very close to the surface, right? Kind of like the guy with his email, the nasty email. I mean, it's right there on the surface. This could mean that asking a question like, how have I hurt you, could be a good first step. And then giving that person the space to respond and listen, whether we agree with what they say or not. We don't tend to like asking questions because that very act surrenders some control. But if things aren't as raw, the goal still shouldn't be merely to small talk, you know, to, to go have dinner with our enemy so we can talk about the, you know, why is it raining right now in the middle of May? White says, spend less time looking for compatibility for things you have in common with them and more time looking for story, looking for pain, looking for their human fragility. Because he's found that pain is a universal language. Because we're all hurting. Some of us just pretend that we're not. White calls this approach compassionate curiosity. And he suggests its practice includes being interested in the other, being inquisitive, that we be in, inter, in, excuse me, interpersonal, Meaning that we seek to be present rather than preoccupied with our phone or wishing we were somewhere else, right? That wouldn't do any good. I'm going to have dinner with you so I can look at my phone and see how Facebook says you're awful. <laughs> but finally he says that we should be indistinct. Now, this last one's really had me thinking this week, indistinct. But White observes about Jesus, something I'm sure many of us have noticed, that Jesus seemed to have a habit of communicating in ambiguous ways, right? Sometimes Jesus is not exactly straight to the point. First, he was prone to answer a question with a question of his own. Second, he often spoke in parables that he would only explain to his disciples and then only if they asked. In fact, White believes if Jesus were walking the earth today, he might be called elusive, ambiguous, and hard to pin down. Now contrast that with your average Christian that you see on television. 
They are not elusive, they are not ambiguous, and they are hard, not hard to pin down. We know who they hate, and we know who they love, we know who they want to win, and we know who they want to lose, right? They're very clear. So White suggests maybe we should take a cue from Jesus and not feel obligated to always engage those who might see the world differently from us in such a direct way all the time. Don't always be so direct with them. He says, if you're conversing with those you might be polarized with, resist the urge to be clear and combative. He says, is it ever okay to be ambiguous? I believe it is because Jesus was quite often. Is it ever okay to come across unclear, God forbid? White says, I believe it is because Jesus sometimes was unclear. Is it ever okay to give to not give a yes or no to the is it a sin question? White says, yes, because often the history of that question is so convoluted with agendas. Jesus is not calling us to agenda. He's calling us to loving presence. Lay down your agenda. White says, to be indistinct is to be at peace, not being heard, seen, or acknowledged for the opinions I hold. To be at peace for not being heard, seen, or acknowledged for the opinions I hold. Well, if anything requires that we feel known and loved by God, it's surely that. So I'll close with this. The the Lord is calling each of us to continue following him down the narrow way the road less traveled. But to do that requires that we take up our cross, that we give up our agendas, which are born of fear, and learn to be a loving presence even with those we may have grown to hate. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.